Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Teach us your ways, O Lord, and we will walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Amen. Intractable political divisions. A war in Ukraine. Shootings. Violence in our schools. The world is not as it should be. Isaiah says the same about his day. Violence, perversion of justice, corruption, selfish living. We blame the political parties or the big corporations or the military-industrial complex. But Isaiah knew something else was at the root. We read about it in chapter 1. Human pride that leads to idolatry. Our failure to turn to God in repentance and faith, that is why the world is what it is. It's easy to say, but do we believe that? Do we really believe that? What do you think needs to happen in order for things to get better in this world? Frankly, we often act as though it's more legislation or for the right people to be in control, or even a new political party. But Isaiah tells us plainly that the only thing that will ever really change the world is revival. And do you know what else Isaiah knows? It will happen. There will be revival. People will turn to God in repentance and faith. This world will be transformed by the power of God. And that's why Isaiah gives us passages like this one. What one writer calls a poem to the transforming power of hope. It's a good thing too. Because without passages like this one, I feel at times like Isaiah might get too heavy for us to take. He's relentless in pointing out our own sin. He's so graphic about God's just wrath against it. Taken on its own, his effort to lead us to self-awareness would really just weigh us down. Sin weighs us down. It's harmful to our psyche, to our sense of well-being. Repetitive patterns of sin, those ones we did again, 
brings the heavy weight of shame. Awareness of our sin brings the burden of guilt. And the weights keep piling up, getting heavier and heavier, forcing us to take action. And we ask, where do I go from here? And there's only two options. You can numb yourself to it, or you can deal with it. So we choose to deal with it, but we begin by taking it up in our own strength. Now we've got the weight of our original sin, the shame, the guilt, and the weight of the failures that come from trying to overcome sin in our own strength. That's why unrepented sin is exhausting. It is the heaviest of burdens. And Isaiah would simply exhaust us were it not also filled with passages like this one, these invitations to hope. And hope, it's surprising. First, it surprises us with its timing. Things are morally and socially dark for Israel now. They're quickly going to become politically and militarily dark as well, and that will make it hard to hope. As one of the reformers put it, it is difficult to cherish the hope of safety, when we are in the midst of destruction. As Judah's situation becomes more obviously perilous, they'll be inclined to feel more hopeless than hopeful. Isn't that just what we do? When you want to be comforted, I suspect you rarely look far into the future. There's just too much unknown out there. There's too many scary or bad things that could happen or the biggest fear of all, that nothing will ever change. Is that what you can turn to for hope? When I was a kid, you were pretty much guaranteed to get one of those magic eight balls as a birthday present from some friend at some point. And it was fun. We knew not to take it seriously, but we wanted to take it seriously We wanted something that would tell us with certainty what we could hope for in the future. I'd ask it, am I going to get this present or that one? Am I going to win the competition? Will the cute girl over there like me one day? And I'd shake that eight ball and I'd look at it. And more than is statistically reasonable, in my opinion, the ball would tell me outlook not so good. When we think about the future, that's often our point of view, isn't it? Outlook, not so good. That's why, as another pastor put it, modern people typically find our incentives for living in the present, not in the future. Left to ourselves, we're defenseless against the buffetings of life. But here's the surprise. God's hope doesn't come when things are going well. And when the present is what makes us optimistic about the future. God's hope comes when things are a mess. In Isaiah's time, God's people are a mess. The world and the culture in which they live is even messier. There's the moral and spiritual decay that he described in chapter 1. And despite Israel's efforts to deny it, it's reality. And they're hopeful, not because of the future, but because of the present. Externally, they're doing quite well. But when the invading armies come, when Judah's present circumstances are fear and then suffering and then exile, what will their hope be in then? 
It's only when our present circumstances give little reason for hope that we really see how we always should have been looking elsewhere for it. Things are too good right now for Judah to find her hope in God. And then when the trying times come and things get bad, they'll transition from oblivious directly to hopeless. Looking at their new circumstances, they won't see anything worth hoping in. And that, says one scholar, that is when Christ comes to us. Through him, our losses become pathways to hope. Looking ahead to the establishment of God's perfect kingdom. Not looking at his current circumstances. Not looking at what comes next. Looking ahead to the establishment of God's perfect kingdom, Isaiah says, it shall come to pass. The idolatry will come to an end. Revival will sweep the land. Many people shall say, come, let us go up. The culture will be at an all-time low unrighteousness, neglect of God, and yet God will bring them revival. But we think he can't act now. The people of God, the church, will be at an all-time low. They will be exiled from the land. Yet God will bring revival to his church. But we think he can't now. And personally, don't you think there were individuals within Judah having the worst years of their life? Death, broken relationships, financial hardship, these aren't new problems. Do you know what God did? He brought them, personally, revival. But we think he can't act now. When God brings revival giving us the faith to believe his promises. Then, regardless of their circumstances, his people have real hope. One pastor paraphrased, whatever your situation may be, although you may be oppressed by afflictions on all sides, cherish this assured hope. The law will go out from Zion. There's a play on words here. Isaiah's in the latter days in Hebrew sounds really, really close to Genesis 1's in the beginning. With his prophetic vision, Isaiah sees the whole timeline from the beginning to the horrific present all the way through to the glorious future. Things may be bad now, but Isaiah sees that's just when God's promises come. Hope surprises us with its timing. A second way that hope surprises us is in the form that it takes. Isaiah says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. There are a lot of surprises here. Consider the mountain of the Lord, this Mount Zion that will be established as the highest of the mountains. I don't know what you're picturing, but if you've ever seen a picture of Mount Zion, it's a hill. It barely qualifies as a plateau. By human standards, it is completely unimpressive. In the present, 
And to the eyes of unbelief, it is inconceivable that it would be lifted above the mountains of every other nation. But the hope of God's people is that he says he will take what is small in the eyes of the world and make it great in his kingdom. Isn't that what God does? He surprises us with the form that hope takes. But to you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler of Israel. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Isn't this what God does? He surprises us with the form that hope will take. Our hope is not in the greatness of what we see. It's in the certainty of God's promises to take what is of little account and to the surprise of everyone to make it great in his kingdom. Why do we have hope? Not because things look great. Not even because things look possible. We have hope because when God says it will be established, it will be established. And if this mountain is surprising, how much more the river? It's not a river of water, but of people. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let's go up. Do you notice the river of worshipers isn't flowing down the mountain, but up the mountain? Thoughtful Christians today can have little to do with the fads and the trends and the crazes that consume this world. The things that everyone is talking about and everyone is doing, we often don't get to be a part of. But on that day, God's people are the trendsetters. The nations, many peoples will eagerly come alongside us to worship God. That's why we should never be ashamed of our holy calling because hope does not put us to shame. Another surprising aspect of the form of hope is that it includes both diversity and unity. It says all the nations come, many peoples, not just Israelites, but Gentiles from every tribe and nation. There's diversity of skin color, of background and experience. And yet it says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Among these diverse peoples, in the latter days that the Lord will establish, swords and spears are put to better use than war, farming and fishing and production. And it surprises us because in our present, diversity does not often bring peace, but conflict. It seems to promote insensitivity and resentment, pride and self-protection, warring, irreconcilable worldviews. Looking at our present, the promise of diversity would be a surprising form for hope to take. But as one pastor says, in all this beautiful diversity... They find their greatest delight 
in new devotion. Look at what the people say. They don't just say, let's go up. They say, let's go up that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It's our sin natures. Life in this fallen world, life under the curse, these have taught us war. But Isaiah says that in the latter days, we don't learn war anymore. We learn his ways, and then because we've learned them, we walk in his paths. Now notice, we first have to learn them. People in pride often think that their ways are God ways, that it's intuitive to them what God calls us to do, that they can do what's right apart from God teaching us. But Isaiah knows that's impossible. We must first learn his ways, and then we can walk in them. For this future city to be one of peace, God must reconcile us in the gospel, not only to himself, but to one another. The unity of God's people comes not from causes of our own making, not from identifying mutually agreeable commitments. Our unity comes from God. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's surprising. It would also be a bit silly to leave this section on the surprising form of hope without at least mentioning the way God communicates this invitation to his people. Look at the surprising way verse 1 begins. The word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. The word that he saw. That's the language of prophetic vision. God didn't only give Isaiah a message to hear. He gave him a message to see. One thoughtful pastor explains teaching sometimes doesn't have enough weight for us. So God adds visions so that through them he may seal his teaching to us. He gives us pictures of the events, so to speak. So here, to stop God's people from doubting, the prophet sketches a picture of the glory of God. We're a people of the word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hear. Faith comes by hearing. Blessed are those who yet have not seen and believed. And yet, much to our surprise, God sketches for us pictures of his promises and his faithfulness. Things for us to see. What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? Hope comes in surprising forms. Lastly, hope provokes a surprising response. Isaiah's vision in chapter 1 regarded Judah's presence, present, their sinful rebellion against God. And this hopeful vision, chapter 2, regards their future. He says, it shall come to pass. It will be, though it is not yet. And so given that, we would expect not much to change in the short term. That God will do something in the future changes what exactly? 
about what we think, feel, and do in the present. And Isaiah says, oh, what does it change? Everything. God's promise of a glorious future does, even now, change the lives of those who believe. Not completely. We still long for the great day of Jesus' consummation. We long for the day when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We live in the already, not yet. We have already inherited the substance of these promises in Christ, and they are not yet fully realized in the world at large. But when Jesus was lifted up on the hill of Calvary, what do you think was happening there if not the mountain of the house of the Lord being established for all people to see? And even now, are not many nations coming to that hill every day? Within the church, the diverse people of God, we can live in the peace of God's unity. That's what we're supposed to be doing. In the church, we can live in that kingdom now. Another pastor says we can live now in the power of that future. And another, that that's exactly what we're doing when we cultivate mutual friendships. When we abstain from doing harm to our neighbor. Kids, it's not easy to love people well. People are hard to love, actually. People can disappoint us. They can hurt our feelings. They can be cruel to us. People can even betray us. But because of the hope we have in Christ, because we know where all this is going, because we are confident and secure in him, we can love others in surprising ways. We can evangelize. This hope provokes our evangelism. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Filled with the hope of God, our desire is to bring others into that joyful knowledge. We don't just think about ourselves and our private standing before God. We rejoice in the opportunity to bring others to meet him, for others to learn his ways and to walk in him. Oh, brother, your despair, let me show you where you can bring it. Oh, dear sister, this grief that has you weighed down, let me show you who will carry that burden instead. And notice the posture of this exchange isn't some scolding lecture or some hypocritical, do as I say, not what I do. Let me tell you what you need. No, it's walking together, side by side, brothers and sisters in Christ, going up to the house of the Lord. We teach others as friends, not as rulers, for we're all sitting together at the master's feet. Now, that's not to say there's no distinction in the passage between those who are coming to faith and those who already have faith. Because those who already believe have even now the hope brought forth by God's promises. That is, seeing what can be and what will be in the kingdom of God provokes our walk in holiness now. Look at verses 3 and 5. They're very similar. Many people say, come, let us. 
Verse 3, let us go up that he may teach us and that we may walk in his path. They're at the beginning of their walk with God. Their desire is to go and to meet him and to learn from him and to be changed by him so they can follow him. But for God's people, though we always have much to learn about holiness, we don't have to wait to walk in it. The difference is the prepositions, verse 3's to compared with verse 5's in. One teacher explains the nations come to the worship of God. Believers walk in God's light. What this means is that we Christians become a prophetic presence in our generation. As Isaiah was, the nations can see the future they desire most in the present we have together. Now think about that because it's a delightful privilege and it's a big responsibility. All these people that we want to think differently, to feel differently, to do differently, these people in our lives that we want to change, what Isaiah calls us to do is to live in the present, the kind of life that they don't even believe is possible in the future, but that we know because of the Lord's promises will come to pass. A future of reconciliation, a future of confidence, a future of peace, a future of love for neighbor. And they think it can't be done. And we're supposed to live lives that are a prophetic witness to the fact that not only will it come to pass, but that within the church of Jesus Christ, it can be so even today. My plea with you this morning is not to wait. Don't wait. Whether your current circumstances are serene or strenuous, there's no real hope to be found in your present circumstances. Hope is found in the promises of God. Isaiah told God's people, it shall come to pass. And it has. Christ lifted up on a cross, raised from the tomb. He, the mountain of the house of the Lord. And then starting with Pentecost and continuing through today, the river of God's people from every nation and tribe flowing up to him in faith. Don't wait for some future day to put your mind at ease. Don't wait for some circumstantial change to live with hope. Have it now. Now. In Christ, have it now. And then don't wait for some speculative future day to live in hope's transforming power. Today, let that hope reconcile you to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Today, today, share your faith. Saying to those who don't yet know Christ, come, let us go up that he may teach us his ways today. And today, by the power of God's hope, walk in holiness. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for those who persecute you.
day. Of course, I guess I should have just summarized that the way another man did. He put it way more succinctly. Everything I just said, he put much more succinctly. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. 